This is Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the Retail Doctor. Sponsored by CoreLogic. The winners of companies that are over $500 million are more than three times more likely to already be allowing their consumers to check out with their phones. Welcome to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with your host, Bob Fibbs, the champion for a more human connection in retail for over 30 years as a retail doctor. Bob is the authority on brick-and-mortar retail across the world, who works with some of the biggest luxury brands to independent retailers of all sizes. Today, I get the opportunity to talk with Greg Busick, the founder and president of IHL Group, who RIS News named, along with yours truly, as one of the top 10 influencers in retail. Greg has a master's degree in business administration from Ohio State University and 25 years of experience in the retail market analysis, business planning, product development, and consulting with Fortune 500 companies business. Welcome, Greg. Bob, it's great to see you, and it's great to be on the program. We are fellow Buckeyes. I, yes. When I was a kid, I grew up in Toledo. So, oh, wow. Um, but then quickly moved to California when I, my folks, you know, when I turned 10. So never looking back. What about you? Did you grow up in Ohio? No, born and raised in Cincinnati, went to Ohio State for six years, and then NCR came calling and took me down to Atlanta. Nice. So what was your first job with NCR? What were you doing with? Well, it was, yeah, it's actually a, an it, story. So I was an intern. I was probably the last intern picked out of my MBA program. I was a graduate assistant for the recreation intramural program. So I was planning to be there for the summer handling the rec centers and stuff. And then I got an opportunity to work with NCR as an intern. And that summer, my first job was I was put in a lab with IBM's 4680 system. And they said, make this thing lose data. And so my first job was hacking into IBM's 4680 supermarket system. So that was my first job. And were you successful at that? I was by the end of the summer, and I figured out how to run transactions without uh, those ringing up in the back office server. And so I ended up getting a job in competitive intelligence for NCR. Wow. Now, how how does that inform your choices today with IHL? Well, what was really interesting is that it forced me to learn everybody else in the industry. You know, most people get hired into a company and they get they get just buried inside that company and all their processes and everything. And and occasionally they'll learn about another company, you know, maybe if it's in a deal or something like that, or they'll hear some scuttlebutt at a conference, et cetera. But they don't really study those companies. And I had to study those, all those competitors like IBM, Fujitsu, at the time, uh, Microsoft was doing some things. There was a company called PSI. We were looking at all those things in the late 80s, early 90s. And so I got a good lay of the market. So when it came time to start IHL, I, I left NCR, went to Sensormatic for a couple of years, and then started IHL in 1996. So this is our 25th year this year um, with IHL. Thank you. And... Um, I had a pretty good platform of what was going on in the market, who had the strengths, who had the accounts, et cetera, through that. And because IBM and NCR pretty much trained the industry in technology back then, a lot of friends I knew, they all moved to other companies. And so that helped me grow my business as we went to syndicate it. So we started doing um, a little bit of competitive work for NCR as a first project, I think in 96, 97. And then we started syndicated 
research right after that. And then it's grown from there. So why does a company hire you, Greg? Today, uh, really for the this market awareness and market analysis, one of the things we do as a research house is whenever we get the data, you know, it's easy to just do a single pass of the data and put it out there as a short white paper. But at the end of the day, you look at some of these data points and you say, so what? And, and our, our research has to pass that, so what? So we always go another level deeper to see what the nuggets are. So like, for instance, we have a webinar next week that is on what winners are doing differently and investing in differently in 2022. Well, you've got to cut the data from, you know, who's growing, who's not growing, what are they doing? And like, okay, now you've sliced that, you know what the difference between the winners and the average folks are doing, but what are they really investing in at a heavy level? And that's where it really becomes, in my opinion, intelligence as to what's going on. It's not just 42% say this or whatever. It's things like, just to give you an example, uh, the winners of companies that are over $500 million are more than three times more likely to already being allowing their consumers to check out with their phones. And that's a huge impact on their sales and the ability to get through the line faster, et cetera, like that. So those are the kind of things that we do at IHL from a, from a research standpoint, and whether that's a custom research project for an individual company or something that's broader for the industry, we take that extra step to look at that and dig through it. So our latest study with RAS News coming out in January, at the top level, I have 133 stories that popped out there that I get to choose from and then rank so what, so to speak, is what do we get to share for, for each thing? So I, I enjoy digging in and finding and finding those stories and saying, aha, that's what's really going on there. And that's that's the special thing that's happening. Well, you know, some people have said that uh, the game is over, that the big boys, Amazon, Walmart and Target have cleaned the clocks of everybody else. They got bigger under the under COVID, they could execute better than anybody because they have been through the fire and come on the other side laughing. Is that your way you would see it for not, uh, other brands? or Not necessarily, but it's getting close. We're not there yet. I think the next big battle, and we believe the next decade, is based on who can get to accurate inventory first. And right now, none of those guys have the inventory thing fixed. Um, in fact, I mean, you mentioned Walmart, you can go into the Walmart stores. Now, my local Walmart, they don't have enough people to change the prices on the shelves, let alone do, you know, have the, the shelf stocked with everything right now. So this labor shortage is really holding people back and certainly the supply chain issues that are there. But at some point you get the systems and you can get the accurate data because you can count that information on the shelves or, or what have you, and you have accurate inventory data then it is pretty much game over because it's AI and machine learning on that data to make faster, quicker decisions. And right now we've had this huge expansion of these digital journeys as a result of COVID. We had, you know, buy online, pick up and store, you know, click and collect, ship from store, et cetera. Well, in every one of those retailers are losing three to 15 points of margin, depending on the level of involvement, the level of staffing that's involved in those transactions. So the big race right now is how do I make those profitable? Because they're not going away. With the pandemic, when it started, the experience was so poor that we only estimated about 45% of people would stay with click and collect or buy online, pick up and store because you're fighting for wait times and slots and delivery and substitutions, it was so poor. But as things elongated, it got stickier. And now we're seeing as close to 80% 
or higher uh, stickiness in those digital journeys going forward. So as we look forward to 2022 and beyond, it's not people coming back to the stores or doing digital, it's both. And, and if you're losing, you know, some cases 40 to 50% of the business is coming through a digital channel and you're losing 15 to 20% margin in some cases on that, you've got to fix that. And you've got to invest in the technologies to be able to do that. So that's that, the rates in the near term on that. Does that uh, silo into like, is it more weighted to people with grocery and less with apparel? Is it more beauty and less hardware? I mean, I, it's, it's hard to believe that 80% of people who did, you know, buy online and pick up at the curb are going back. I know when I drive by our Walmart, which I'm in upstate New York, and that's like our big, uh, we have a Walmart and a Lowe's. That's our big development mm-hmm. for 40 miles around. And uh, those big drive up areas that were busy last year, I don't ever see anybody there. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I'm just curious. Yeah, it's different by segment. What's really fascinating to me, though, is what's happening in clothing. In clothing, we're seeing the big growth. I mean, most things have started to settle in terms we had this big boost and now they're starting to settle in, but they're not necessarily dropping. The one that's growing is buying clothes online for pickup and store and paying a fee to do that. And the reason for that is we have still not figured out the size issue and the return problem when it comes to buying clothes online. So what's happening, and in fact, it goes up with income in terms of being willing to pay a fee and that people are willing to reserve it at the store, go try it on and return it in one trip. So they're not waiting two, three days to get it, only to be frustrated and have to go back to a store to return it anyway. Wow. So they're willing to heard of that yet. to reserve that inventory at the local store. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. So, Do you think that that's going to have... You know, as we look at retail moving forward, I think everybody has come out of the pandemic suddenly believing that stores actually have a place. And instead Mm -hmm. of kicking them to the ground and saying they're all garbage and no one will ever go there, I think everybody is trying to figure out what that looks like uh, and how it plays out. I know that I was shocked when I started going back out into the world and how the malls look like Christmas and yeah. there's bags in hands and people yeah. are happy and they're snapping things up. You said initially how demand is kind of normalizing across everything. I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago and they were talking about how economists are looking at how building materials are normalizing. And they think that's the canary that as building materials normalize, that that'll happen with the rest of, of retail. What are you seeing in the next you know, six to 18 months. I mean, clearly I think we're going to be in for a mother of uh, all holiday sales, whether it's going to affect everybody equally. I don't don't think anybody knows that yet, but quite simply the consumer is finally putting their foot down on the gas. And I think we're going to drive us for a while, but then what happens? Yeah. You know, it's really fascinating. There's what the market's going to do. And then what I tell my friends to do, you know, so the market is going to be up because we have the benefits of inflation and retailers are not going to discount to the same level because they just don't have the inventory yet. It's still sitting on boats in a lot of cases and not going to get here in time. But come January and February, that all that merchandise is going to show up. So I've been telling my friends, get gift cards because you're going to get some deals. And the second thing that's happening is the child tax credit. Okay, most consumers don't know that that's an advance on next year's tax return. So there's going to be a rude awakening come March and April where all of these folks all of a sudden realize, 
well, that money's gone. I spent that money at Christmas and that's going to have a negative impact on the holiday. So just as we're starting to figure out all these supply chain things and the boats start to get back to normal, all of a sudden we're going to have a pullback in retail sales. We're going to have gangbusters here at Christmas and a pullback in, in the early of next year. So, yeah. And as I say, you know, so what, I can't get your hundred dollar widget from your store. I'm going to go buy a hundred dollar widget from somebody else's store. That's what people don't realize. Like it's not about you being out of stock. I'm going to spend that somehow, whether it's going to be travel or, or what other experiences I can. And it's, it's yours to lose. Right. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate that insight on the uh, gift cards because it'll be a, a discount, probably a mother of all discounts, because to your point, once we solve the supply chain, AI can't keep up with that, right? It's the right. same thing, that big of a kick, suddenly all the supply comes on and how do you weather it as a retailer? I mean, clearly the stores need it, but that's a that's a headache I'm glad I don't have to worry with, my friend. Right, right. You know, and it's interesting too, that retailers are buying about 30% more merchandise than they would normally buy in hopes they get some of it and have it. So we got some warehouses that are full right now with things that they think they're going to sell, but they don't know if they're going to sell, but they got 30% more of certain things than others. Uh, I think when you get the fast moving consumer goods, it's a completely different challenge. And we're going to do an out of stock index come January, February timeframe where we're going to rank retailers based on in stock performance for items there. But it's really, in many cases, not the retailer's fault. They say, send me a hundred. And they, and the manufacturer says, you'll get three. And it's like, okay, well, what do you, you, what do you do in that situation? So those are some unique challenges that are out there right now in the market as we've gone through this process. I mean, we wiped out in certain categories, we wiped out four months of inventory for the country in two and a half weeks. And you just can't recover from that in a quick in a quick manner. So, and at, at the end of the day, it's probably going to the skills for those old time buyers who knew how to really buy and not just give everything to data. They're going to have to be called. I would think would have to be called back to figure out. You've been through a lot of recessions. What does this look like? Right. I mean, we've yeah. had board stoppages before in L.A. and Long Beach. Yeah, what's really been fascinating through COVID, the early stages of COVID, all of those people that were on the side of retail that were gut feel, old time buyers, they went to school where math wasn't required type of thing in some of these industries. And some, you know, you get into some of the fashion categories and things like that. It's more about the design and style than it is about things. And they, they just simply don't trust the systems. Well, when when sales tanked for specialty soft goods and, and department stores, et cetera, that was an excuse for a lot of these retailers to say, we got to invest in these systems. And if you're not coming along, you're not coming along. And, and so they were able to do that. Now we have the opposite problem. We can't find enough people to work in our retail environments. And, you know, it's mostly pushed at the store level, but it's also at the warehouses. It's also delivery, but it's also at the home office and IT where we can't find enough people in those positions. But the underlying pieces of those organizations have fundamentally changed. The retailers that survived the early stages of COVID that were non-essential made a massive transformation in the level of IT that they're spending on. In fact, we saw the percentage of revenue literally go up almost a full percentage point in our research 
because it's strategic. We've got to catch up here because we are going after the Walmarts and the, and the Amazons, et cetera. That piece is happening. But if we had the capital and, and you really had to delineate between those retailers that were leveraged with debt already because of private equity, those people generally went under during the early stages of COVID just because they could not handle the debt load. And so we've cleaned out a lot of that dead wood in terms of things there. And now the ones that are left, at the same time, we wiped out 440,000 small retailers, which were just devastated because of, of local protocols for COVID, things like seasonal businesses not opening, um, et cetera. That happened. So the people that survived, it's gravy train. And if they, the smart ones invested in those technologies to get better at their inventory, to get better at doing their digital journeys and delivering things and, and improving the margins there. And all of those things are in play right now as we go forward. So they're in good, the ones that are left are in pretty good financial position. They just have to plan for, hey, understand the what's coming when we get to March and April, when all of a sudden that money doesn't seem to be there that's normally there that time of year. Well, and if you keep giving away margin, because every time somebody touches something, you're losing margin, then yeah. you can be cash, what is it, cash rich and I don't know, whatever it is, but you, you've got the sales, right? You, you look yeah. like you're successful, but there's really not that much underpinning. You're really passing through the money, not really adding it to it. Well, listen, we're going to continue in just a minute. And I want to talk about our sponsor, CoreLogic. Millennials and shoppers alike have many options when it comes to retail shopping. Competition is fierce, and CoreLogic wants to make sure your business is front and center of the transaction. Robust property data gives retailers of any size a competitive edge with a clear 360-degree customer view and a deeper level of insights into their targeted audience. Retail marketers can use CoreLogic's trusted property data to build a successful customer loyalty experience. By identifying new customers and uncovering accurate marketing insights, CoreLogic will help your business thrive. Learn more at corelogic.com find. And we're back with Greg talking about yeah. switching hats on you now, sir. Uh, so I want to talk about the Retail Orphan Initiative. I know in 10 years, Retail ROI, as it's called, has been involved in over 200 projects in 24 countries, helping estimated 226,000 children through clean water, education, computers, language, training, and care. So where was the need for this, Greg, and, and how did it get started? Oh, gosh. Where, where do you want to start? Well, it started for me 20 years, almost 18 years earlier from the time we started it. Um, between the time I was at Sensormatic and I started IHL, I got fired from Sensormatic from my position. And, and I got fired after a lunch with my pastor at our church who said I needed help in missions. And I said, missions? I'm a business guy. I, I don't know what the heck I could do there. And before I got back to my desk, I got fired. And so that got my attention and I was like, okay, I could do missions. And everything kept coming back to the country of Liberia. And so uh, this is uh, South Florida. So I-95, one morning I knew it was Liberia. I knew Liberia was about to go into civil war. I'm literally driving up I-95 going, uh, you know, if you want me to go to Liberia, I'll go. All I know is my friend there has been shot at. He's had an eight-year-old hold an AK-47 at him. He's had malaria three times. But I need like a burning bush if I'm going to Liberia. 
And as I'm praying that prayer, there's a guy pushing his car up the road in Boca Raton, Florida. And I pull over to help him. And it's got a bumper sticker that says, I support Liberia. And so you're like, okay, burning bush. Thank you very much. Yeah. So that started my journey. And I was never able to go to Liberia back then. And um, because they went into civil war and shut it down. So I started IHL. I started a business and, and needed to get started. Well, that was 25 years ago. One of the things that happened is there was a verse that was leave your country, go to where I'll show you a land I'll show you was part of a verse for me planning to go to Liberia. 15 years later, I moved up here. I've got kids. I've got everything, you know, married up in Tennessee now. And our pastor starts teaching off the same thing. And the word families popped off the page. And so I started searching that. And that led me to an organization called Family Legacy and Lifesong for Orphans that did no interest loans for adoption. And then finally, I was at a conference and it says, there comes into the life, it's a, it's a, uh, a guy was sharing a Winston Churchill quote, there comes into the life uh, a cause for which a man is uniquely suited. What a pity if that moment finds him unwilling or unprepared for that which may become his finest hour. And so at that point in time, I knew I was supposed to do something with orphans. And there's a lot I've left out there. But I met up with Paul Singer. And many, many of us know Paul Singer. Paul was the chief information officer for Target and later Super Value. And he's the guy that took over for Dave Thomas of Wendy's to lobby Congress for foster kids and things. And I said, what if we just did something in the industry? Let's just create a secular charity in the industry around orphans and vulnerable kids. And we met at Oracle Open World. It was the day that Lehman Brothers went under. So it gives you a date specifically. And Paul had taken over Open World. He did a 45-minute presentation that was supposed to be on Target. He spent five minutes on Target and talked about adoption and foster kids for 40 minutes in the presentation. And and we kind of had met and we walked outside and there were like six friends who all agreed saying, we see each other at every event. We know each other. Let's do something together to help kids. And so we started and did the paperwork. And unfortunately, Paul, as soon as we signed the paperwork, Paul had called and said he has a brain tumor and um, he had to have surgery. And it fell to me to lead after that. And we, we decided, hey, okay, we got to raise money. What can we do? We said, we looked around the room of the people. He says, we go to events all the time. We know who the best speakers are. Let's, let's put on an event and we'll treat it like ladies night. You know, we'll invite all the retailers to come for free and we'll charge all the people that want to sell to those retailers. And we'll put on a business event that where all the funds go to fund, uh, you know, clean water projects, school technology projects, life skills, et cetera. And so that's what we did. And so here we are 11 years later, 12 years later, and you know, I think it's now 250,000 kids in 27 countries that we've been able to infect by giving a hand up. And so, you know, that's it's been incredible, incredible journey uh, with a lot of friends and a lot of industries and just doing incredible work. We've met all kinds of incredible people around the world. We travel together. We go on trips together. Uh, our trips are we call them vision trips. Um, we, we don't even ask people to have a, an idea or have a project in mind. Just come and see the work that's going on and realize that what you do every day can have a major impact on what's going on here. So 
I'll give you one example. John Geierman. John was one of the guys who helped Walmart grow from four to 2,000 super centers back in the early 90s. Well, he was vice president of Schlotsky's, a franchise development. So uh, Todd, Todd Michaud said, if you get John down to this project in Honduras, you'll get a new kitchen for this place. So we bring down John to that. And the kids were cleaning corn out in a laundry basket with a garden hose. And next thing we know, John has put a million dollar kitchen in there with, uh, you know, uh, it's basically food safety and all this stuff, a million dollar U.S. kitchen. We've got it put in there for sixty five thousand dollars. And then we needed a, a corn for the tortillas. They were making forty three hundred tortillas a day. So we went, well, who's the biggest buyer of corn? And we said uh, Cargill. So let's call Cargill and see if they'll donate two train cars worth of corn, which is what we need for this school. And they agreed to do it, but it came in individual kernels. <laughs> and we're like, okay, we need to get this back. So somebody else said, you know what? My friend's got a seed packing plant in Indiana. Let's just get it shipped there. And so they put it in 50 pound bags. And then somebody that does shipping and logistics for a living said, well, all it is is a container. And so they, they bought the container, scheduled the FDA inspection, and we got a year supply of food for 600 kids for $7,500 delivered to Honduras. Um, I love that idea of it, people coming together for the community, right? People you don't even know, but you can all say, I can do that. I think that's the key of making any, any charity work, right? Is people see yeah. how they can tap in and then it's easy for them. That's the key. Yeah, our big goal is we've got a lot of really successful people in this industry um, who have incredible networks and talent. If we can just uh, turn the light bulb on, make an introduction and let them go, it's amazing what happens. Uh, John is now the chairman of the board for a human trafficking prevention organization here called Free for Life, uh, now here based in Nashville. And they've already rescued 2,251 women and children at the border between Nepal and India uh, with retail ROI's help uh, from trafficking. And uh, he met that through our event, through somebody else, but he got started on one, one project. Amazing. Now, I know that tonight you have a virtual shark tank yes. coming up in Jamaica. So yeah. uh, tell me a little bit about that before we get yeah, off the so call. What, you know, one of the challenges with COVID is we haven't been able to do the trips. And although we do have a trip in DR right now, there's a group uh, in the Dominican Republic went down there now. We haven't been able to travel and we were planning to go to Jamaica and Parker Avery has volunteered to teach an entrepreneur course to kids in Jamaica um, up in, in the Chapelton area. And tonight is the first presentation of the Shark Tank. So we have six students that have prepared these uh, business plans. I've, I've glanced over them so far. I look forward to digging in a little bit more, but those presentations start tonight and we have $10,000 in prize money set aside to be seed capital for these businesses to get launched. Wow. That's amazing. And so it's a lot of fun. So once again, Parker Avery group does consulting and business planning and stuff for, for companies all day long. They taught these skills to these kids and, and, and then we're hoping that this starts to build an industry in that area of Chapelton, Jamaica. Nice, nice. Now, how is your, you know, through Sensormatic and certainly through NCR, how has the way you thought about retail changed in the last few years, you think? Oh, wow. I think um, when you're a consumer, all you see is what's wrong 
when you go into a store, a lot of times all oh, the shelf is empty. This is, you know, these guys don't know what they're doing, et cetera. And then you go behind the scenes and talk to the people that are doing the planning and doing the things. And it's, it's incredible the amount of complexity that is involved in ordering things, particularly in situations like we have now where we've got shortages, where you can't just say, I'm buying one and one shows up when it's supposed to show up and it doesn't happen. I was just at a price management conference and we had really, really smart people in there that are trying to figure out, hey, you know what? Bananas only have one code. But when it's shipped, I want 20% to be green so they can ripe when I'm there. I need 40% to be a little bit green. And then I need the rest of it to be ready to go when it gets there. And I have to have so many things. Well, if the employee doesn't get the count right, the order doesn't come through the next day appropriate. So the ratio gets all messed up and you don't sell as many bananas because they're too green or they're too ripe, et cetera, as a result. And that's just one item in a store. And you realize the just sheer complexity of what's going on, particularly, like I said, when you order 10 and only three show up, and, and you're like, well, wait, the thing said 10. I was expecting 10. The shelf's ready for 10. Where is it? And how do you how do you adjust on the fly to do that? So I, I think it probably makes you also appreciate those people that did retail decades ago who built the foundation of this industry is responsible for one in four jobs in America. And, you know, in some ways it was luck, but in a lot of other ways it was, they were totally flying and building the plane, right? They didn't have the data. They didn't know if there's, if there's less on the, on the shelf, I guess we sold it. Yeah. And the other thing that's happened is there's still a ton of inefficiency in the marketplace. I mean, we lose worldwide about 10% of same store sales due to out of stocks and overstocks. The difference between what the consumer wants to buy and what's actually on the shelf there at any one time. Now, it's a lot better in the U.S. than it is in, in other parts of the world. But it's really fascinating to see how much, I mean, to put in perspective, we lost the GDP of Canada. That's, that's how much we lost in inefficiencies last year due to out-of-stocks there. The other thing that's changed is the U.S. and Europe used to lead the world in innovation with innovation and shopping techniques, et cetera. That has completely changed as we're moving forward. It is being driven primarily through Asia and through South America in Latin and South America right now that are way ahead of the U.S. and Europe when it comes to new shop ways of shopping like live stream, augmented reality, virtual reality kind of things. Um, massive gains when you look at China and Korea and Japan in those technologies. So that lead is now moved east yeah. in a big way. Well, I've enjoyed our conversation today, Greg. Uh, The name of the podcast is Tell Me Something Good About Retail. So I always ask our guests, share with me, what is something good about retail? Well, the thing about retail is just the sheer volume of lives that are changed for the better as a result of our industry. You know, in the United States, we're at $5.5 trillion industry there that is growing right now at anywhere from eight to 10% in some cases. And as a result, that's providing tremendous economic opportunity. And it's really just terrific as an industry. The people that get in retail and grow in retail, they leave sometimes and they're always coming back because there's a unique aspect of retail that just is a, a magnet 
for people and it's some of the great people that work in this industry. I love that. That's a great way to think of it. It's like our listeners. They're magnet yeah. and they come back episode after episode. Yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you today, Greg, and best of luck on Shark Tank tonight. Thank you very much, Bob. Appreciate it. You bet. You've been listening to Tell Me Something Good About Retail with Bob Fibbs, the retail doctor. As a listener, you can receive free information and guides when you visit retaildoc.com and sign up for our exclusive weekly newsletter. Thanks for being with us. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. To virtually bring Bob to all of your crew and associates, check out www.salesrx.com. 